Hey, when you think about the, the Apostle Peter, um, what images come into your mind, either about his characteristics, what he was like, or his emphases, what would have been important to him? You know, I think for many of the Bible characters, we have this, this mental image of what we think they were like, don't we? So, so this is what the Apostle Paul would have been like, or this is what Joseph and Mary would have been like, or this is what um, Samuel's mother Hannah was like. And, and certainly we'd say this, this is what we think our Lord Jesus was like. And it would be, it'd be interesting to go around the room this morning and just compare those, those images does everybody think similarly about Paul? Does everybody think similarly about um, Hannah, etc.? In fact, I think that that might be an interesting exercise in a small group. Write down what you think about this particular Bible character, and then let's compare how different people think about him or her. Now, now, now back to Peter. What images come into your mind, either about his characteristics, what he was like, or about his emphases, what was important to him? Well, characteristics. Would the word tempestuous come into your mind? Would that fit? Maybe passionate. Would that fit? Courageous. Is that what you think about regarding the, the, the characteristics of the Apostle Peter? What about emphases? What was important to Peter? Well, I think we would say evangelism. You may remember this in Acts chapter 4. This was the religious leaders after Peter had healed the lame man. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? By the way, you want a bunch of people in your life asking that question about you because you can't stop talking about Jesus. What are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man. I, I wonder how that one's going to go. And when they had summoned them, they, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> but, but, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we, we can't stop speaking. Is that your testimony this morning? Is that how much you love to tell others about Jesus Christ? Is that how much of an emphasis evangelism is to you? We, we just can't. We can't shut up. We can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. No doubt. No doubt about that. And Peter was, was absolutely committed to, to evangelism, to telling others about Christ, regardless of the price. Now, now, from that same passage, we could also say that another emphasis to which Peter was committed was the centrality of the gospel. It wasn't a message among many. It was the message. And you may remember this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, <laughs> like why would you put us on trial for that? As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom, by the way, you crucified, whom, by the way, again, God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He's the stone, Jesus. He's the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation, and here it is, no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Those are Peter-like emphases, right? 
I think when you, when you think about Peter, that, that's the kind of thing that, that you think about is a rough seasoned fisherman, and he didn't have much of a filter. He, he just let it out there, just let it out there. But what about this? What, what about this one? How long would it be before we would be talking about how Peter emphasized the importance of practicing biblical love? Now, that might not be among the first ideas on the list, but we know it's true because in the key verse that we've been studying this summer, 2 Peter 1, 5-7, now for this very reason also, now watch the verbs because these verbs control every one of these seven characteristics. Applying all diligence. Have you been doing that? In your faith, supply. Have you been doing that? What are the seven things? Moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, what? Love. And so when we think about the emphases that would be important to Peter, it ought to include the fruit of biblical love. And after we consider that for a moment or two, a light bulb might come off. I guess go on is how we would say that. But because it ought to remind us of something that we studied from the book of 1 Peter. That hadn't been that long ago. You remember in 1 Peter we read this, above all, above all, keep fervent in what? There it is, in your love for one another because love covers a, a multitude of sins. So what that tells us is, uh, above all, not only is it an emphasis, it's actually a priority in, in Peter's mind. And I tried to point out as we were reading, but these controlling verbs, apply all diligence to that. In your faith, supply that. So there's no question that developing biblical love was a priority in Peter's mind, which leads us, I hope, to a natural question, which is what? Is that a priority in, in your mind? Is that a priority in mind? Now, with that in mind, I want to invite you to go to your, the Old Testament book of Ruth this morning. Uh, the book of Ruth, that's on page 199 of the front section, the Old Testament of the Bible under the chair in front of you. So the book of Ruth this morning, page 199 of the front section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. This summer, we're doing a series entitled Hope for Fruitful Service. So we've been looking at each one of these seven characteristics of fruitful life in 2 Peter 1, 5-7. Uh, along with selecting an Old Testament character who, whose life pictured or, or illustrates or, or exemplifies that particular characteristic. Now, that's a very valid approach to studying Scripture, and we know that in part because of what Paul said in Romans 15 about all these stories. You realize a significant percentage of our Bibles is comprised of stories. We love stories, don't we? God made us to love stories, and so when He communicated His truth to us, a lot of it, I've heard the estimate 75% of the Bible that God has given us is comprised of narrative story. And here's what Paul said about it. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our, what? What we're doing right now. For our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. So we're going to do a, an overview of the book of Ruth this morning. Thinking about four evidences of a person who's diligent at growing in biblical love. Now, we're kind of assuming this morning that the average person that I'm speaking to has a, a working familiarity with the book of Ruth, but I realize in some cases that might not be true. And, and I would just say that if you're here this morning and you say, well, I, I wouldn't know Ruth from 
Babe Ruth. I mean, I don't know anything about Ruth. I want you to know this. We're very glad for that. We're very glad for that. Why? Because a large part of our mission as a church is that other men and women would be drawn to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that they would become part of our, our church family. And so, so we're always hoping and praying that we're going to have men and women around us who are absolutely new to studying God's Word. So we're, we're thinking about you because we're glad you're here. So, so let me give you a, a quick summary. You ready for this? A, a quick summary of the, the book of Ruth. All of this occurs during the time of the judges. Now, as soon as I say that, I know what you're thinking. I'm a trained counselor. I can read your mind. Pastor Virus, please tell us the dates for the book of Judges. Isn't that what you're thinking? See, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Don't you be thinking about lunch. I'll know what you're having for lunch. Yeah, so anyway, anyway, here's the dates for Judges, 1370 to 1040 B.C. You want that one more time? Sure you do. 1370 the 1040 B.C. And I realized somebody said, well, so, so. And, and I'm not suggesting that in order to understand the Bible, you have to know this endless string of dates. That, that's probably not reasonable. What word do you think is going to come next in that sentence? <laughs> but, but in, in this particular case, there really are some dates that are very, very important. And, and the book of Judges in which the, or the time of the Judges in which the book of Ruth occurred is sandwiched between two very important events in Old Testament history. One of them is the exodus. The exodus of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. That took place about 1440 B.C. So that would have happened before the the time of the judges. The other bookend would be the reign of David. That occurred about 1000 B.C. That's one that's very, very um, uh, easy to remember and that would have been one of the apexes of the history of Israel, the united monarchy under a great king like David. And so we've got the Exodus over here, 1440 B.C. We've got the reign of King David, um, 1000 B.C., and sandwiched in between that. Uh, the book of Judges, and more importantly for our purposes this morning, the, the book of Ruth, it's in between those events. Now, I have to be careful here because if I spend too much time describing the time of the judges, we're not going to have time left to discuss Peter's point about working diligently to grow in biblical love or how Ruth's story illustrates that. But, but here's just a couple of ideas to help us understand that particular period of time, the time of the judges. One is, if you study the book, you know this, it's cyclical. You see the cycle over and over during the period of the, the judges where it starts with God's people living in sin, worshiping false gods, and as a result, going into bondage to some foreign nation, followed by them crying out and being delivered by a particular judge, which was a fascinating group of people that the Lord would raise up, and then peace, shalom for a period of time, until God's people responded, not with thanksgiving and obedience, but instead with idolatry and faithlessness, at which point the cycle starts all over again. And you see that throughout the, the book of Judges for sure. The second idea you need to remember regarding the, the book of Judges is this. In fact, if you're in the book of Ruth right now, you can probably just look over one page. How did the book of Judges end? It's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, now, now think about that. 
What's that tell us about where we are in the history of God working with His people? One is that they and we desperately needed a Redeemer, somebody who could break the, the power of sin so that these cycles did not repeat themselves over it. They desperately needed a Redeemer, and secondly, they desperately needed a king. They needed somebody who… there was no king in Israel. But they desperately needed a king who could take charge of their lives, who could lead them into the kind of peace and joy they so deeply desired. And right in the middle of the period of Judges, we have this incredible story uh, about this young Moabitess named Ruth, Johann Wolfgang Goth. Probably not saying his, word, his name correctly, but, but here's what he said about um, the book of Ruth. He said, it's the loveliest complete work on a small scale. John MacArthur said it this way, what Venus is to statuary and the Mona Lisa is to paintings, Ruth is to literature. That, that's high praise, high praise for sure. Now, now here's the, the basic storyline. It starts with a woman named Naomi, who was a Jewish woman who lived in the town of Bethlehem, which is a fascinating detail, by the way, because Bethlehem means house of bread. By the way, we all know somebody else who was later born in, you want me to break into song here? Oh, little town. <laughs> yeah, there you go, of uh, Bethlehem, speaking of the need for a redeemer and a, and a king. Well, Naomi had a husband. His name was Elimelech, and they had two sons named Malion and Chilion. And sadly, you don't really have to remember their names because they're going to pass away very early in, in this book. And what happened was, don't you love that phrase, what happened was, my niece used to work in the jail. After she got out of um, high school, she worked in a jail for a period of time, and she said it was like going to a high school reunion um, where she worked, and she, it was just amazing how many of her, of her former classmates would tell her, now what happened was, <laughs> they would launch into, the, that was off my notes, by the way. But anyway, what, what happened was that um, God allowed a, a famine in, in Israel, and so Elimelech, the, the husband, the, the, the father, decided to take his family to the country of Moab. Now, that was very odd because Moab was an enemy of Israel. Do you know how the nation of Moab started? It was when Lot had an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. And the yuck factor of that is just totally off the charts. And, and the Bible is silent about whether Elimelech's decision to take his family from Bethlehem, the house of bread, to the country of Moab during a time of famine was right or wrong. And I think we have to be careful. I mean, imagine what it would be like not to be able to feed your family and what you would be willing and able to do in order to try to do so. So I'm not going to be overly harsh with Elimelech. I don't think we should. But it is interesting what John Piper said about that. He said, Moab is a pagan land with foreign gods. That's going to come up very prominently in just a minute. Going to Moab was playing with fire. You don't want to play with fire, do you? Not spiritually, you don't. Going to Moab was playing with fire. God had called his people to be separate from the surrounding lands. Now, by verse 3 of the book, Elimelech has died. And then the two sons married Moabitess women. Do you know both of their names, by the way? It wouldn't surprise me if you didn't remember the first one. Her name was Orpah. And the second one, of course, was Ruth. And then both sons died. So here's what you have early in the book of Ruth. You have a Jewish mother-in-law 
Naomi, and you have two Moabitess daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Then Naomi hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem, and she decides to go back to Bethlehem, and she tells her two daughters-in-law to go back to their families, and most importantly and amazingly, to go back to their gods. In other words, my God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, has let me down. He's not provided for me. They might as well go back and work at somebody else. And just stop now. Step back and think about how the book of Ruth fits into the overall sweep of Scripture. What's this doing in the Bible? I think the answer in part is Naomi was as an individual what Israel was as a nation. That there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. Orpah took Naomi up on that suggestion. She went back to her family and back to their gods, and we never hear from her again. But Ruth, this young Moabitess, this is why there's hope. This young Moabitess makes an incredible statement of faith. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I'll go, and where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. By the way, young people love to use that passage in their weddings. I always have to point out to them, do you realize the groom died? I mean, I'm not sure that's the best verse to use, but <laughs> no judging. But, but, but anyway, anyway, what do you see right there? Here's kind of the point of all. What, what do you see right there? That's love. That's what that is. That, that's exactly what Peter was talking about. So they go back to Bethlehem, and the women from the town say, hey, aren't you Naomi? And she famously responds with what? Yeah, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, remember that, but the Lord has brought me back empty, remember that too. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty, He has afflicted me? That sounds like something that a typical Jewish person during the time of the judges would say. She didn't have a king. Jehovah let her down, so she's just doing that which is right in her own eyes. By the way, that also illustrates how bitterness affects a person's pattern of thinking. I went out full. Really? It was during a time of what? Famine. And God brought me back empty. Who's standing right next to her? Her sweet Moabitess daughter-in-law, Ruth. How would you like to have been Ruth in that moment? <laughs> the Lord brought me back empty. Uh, hello, hello. <laughs> and more importantly, and you might be living right here right now, how do you treat a person who by her own admission was living in full-on bitterness, so much so that she chose that to be her own name, the word that now defines her very identity? How do you treat a person like that? Well, the answer is, at least for a person who listened to what Peter said, although I do realize Peter comes later, the, the answer is you try to treat a person like that with what? W with love. And so Ruth's love is shown in the next chapter by going out to glean in the field in order to find food, not just for her, but for whom? For her bitter mother-in-law, 
And her love's rewarded by a man who turns out to be her kinsman redeemer. The, the imagery is just screaming out in this book. Related to her deceased husband in a way that he could actually pay to redeem the property and therefore make Ruth his wife. And finally, in the end of the book, rewarded with a little baby whose identity we're going to discuss a, a little later on. So, so here's where we are logically. If Peter says... As followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to apply all diligence to supply to our faith the spiritual fruit of love, but then what are the characteristics of that evidenced in the life of Ruth, and how can we grow in that way? Well, it starts right here. Love, our Ruth loved God. That's where it starts. He, she loved God by committing himself to her. You know, what we see this young woman do, it's nothing short of supernatural. It is. And from the perspective of the New Testament, we know that because the kind of love that Ruth had for God and then for Naomi, that, 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 was, that was a fruit of the Spirit. Paul said it this way, the fruit of the Spirit is love. By the way, if you say, I struggle loving other people in my life, you don't have to do it on your own. Is that some good news this morning? The fruit of the what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such that there is no law. Well, how do you get the fruit of the Spirit? You don't go pick it up down at the mire. You could hardly get a decent watermelon there. Although they are getting better. I don't know if you've been... I am, I am a watermelon tester. They're getting better down there at the, the mire. But, but, but you have access to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, again, from a New Testament perspective, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside your heart and life. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God in your body, which means in part, get busy loving the people in your life even when it's hard. And the Holy Spirit of God will, will help you do that. Now, that's wonderful news because I realize you might be here right now and would say, I know a Naomi. I know a person struggling with bitterness. That's my mother-in-law. Or that's my boss, or that's my neighbor. Well, if you work at it, and remember, that, that's what Peter said. You have to apply how much diligence? All diligence. That's part of the sanctification process. It's possible for you to respond to that bitter person in your life with love. Is that true? Could I get even a little bit of a mm-hmm on that? That is possible. Or if you would say, no, wait, wait, wait. I've got somebody else in my life who's difficult to love. It's not because they're bitter, but it's because they're blank. <laughs> yeah? Well, whatever you would put in that blank does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God would be unable to help you develop the spiritual fruit of love. You realize there's incredible hope right there. And that's an incredible challenge. And that assumes, by the way, that there's been a definite time in your life where you admitted your need and trusted Christ as your Savior. He's the, the ultimate Redeemer. He's the very best King. And if you're here, say, I can't love people like that. I can't love people like that. I, I, can't, I can't. You're right. On your own, you can't. That's why you need a Savior. That's why you need a Lord. And we would encourage you today, if you never have before, to place your faith and trust in Him now, I realize I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but let me just say it. I realize some people here might say, listen, listen, I am the Naomi. 
I'm the bitter person. Is there any hope for me? (laughs) Oh, there is. That part of the story is coming. Not not from an Old Testament perspective. I've been mixing New Testament theology with old. Let's, Let's go back to Ruth for a minute. People were justified. They were brought into a personal relationship with God on the basis of their faith, believing what God had revealed to man up to that point in time. How do we know that? Who is the, who is the, 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 the poster boy uh, of the principle that an Old Testament saint was saved by faith alone? The, the answer is Abraham. That, that, that's right. And for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Ruth did. I just think about it. In contrast to a culture of Jewish people who wouldn't acknowledge God as their king and who instead did whatever was right in their own eyes, she, this little Moabitess woman, she clearly and courageously placed her faith in the Lord. Now, if you said to me, because I'm trying to anticipate all of the objections, that's what pastors do. In fact, if you say, what do you pastors do? Well, we study the Word of God, and then we bring a whole bunch of people into our office. It's packed in there. We've got a few attorneys in there. We've got some doctors in there. We've got some laborers in there. We've got some kids in there. It's packed in there in our heads. I mean, I'm not saying we literally do that. We say, how's that going to affect that person? What would, that, what would the ejection from that person be? We try to think all that through it. I realize you might say, well, listen, here, here's what. I can't do that. I can't stop and place my faith and trust in God. Uh, because I'm facing some, some difficulty. So, so after I process my grief or after my life said, no, 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 that, that's not what happened here. That is not what happened here. She made this choice in the face of unspeakable grief. She's a grieving widow. And yet she says, your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. Now you might ask this, well, how did she come to that conviction? What's the answer to that question? How did Ruth come to that conviction? And I think the answer is we don't know. I mean, did Elimelech, the father-in-law, did he talk to Ruth about placing her faith in Jehovah, the God of Israel, before he died? Maybe her husband? Maybe her husband did? I think it's pretty hard to make the argument that probably Naomi did. We, 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 we don't know. And I don't use this phrase very often because I don't want to trivialize the things of God, but I think you'd have to say this. It was a God thing. Ruth's faith, I mean, how do you explain it? You don't. It, it was a God thing. Only the great Redeemer King could have done this. And I realize you might be here this morning, and you might say, you know, I don't know what's going on with me right now. I mean, I, I'm thinking about life and death more. What was up with that? Every time I turn around, there's a a follower of Jesus Christ doing something nice for me or sharing a a, a perspective that I've never considered before. I read this blog. I watch this show. I can't get it out of my mind. What's going on? Here may be the answer. Here may be the answer. You could be the next Ruth. You realize that? You could be the next Ruth, the same Redeemer King who drew a Moabitess woman to himself He might right now be in the process of drawing you. And can I just give you some some friendly advice? You ought to to turn and accept him as Savior and Lord right now. That'd be the best thing because he's he's like relentless in his love. If you say, how much does God love me? A lot, a lot. I like, I think it was Spurgeon who called God the hound of heaven, pursuing, can you imagine it? 
You know, by the way, that's not a bad hound. And, um, <laughs> but can you imagine? And that may be happening to you, and we would encourage you to, to respond. Now, you might say this, I'm not doing that as long as I have to live around so-and-so. Well, who was Ruth living with? See, imagine living day in and day out with a person who freely said she was so bitter that might as well be her name. And yet Ruth loved God and trusted in Him even when others didn't. And that's the process. God initiates. God loves us. And then we have to decide if we're going to love Him. And if we do, if we do, then what? We can learn to love other people in our life. We can be diligent about it, right? Go to work. Go to work, go to work, go to work. We can be diligent about that regardless of the circumstances. Now, now what do we learn next? Well, Ruth also loved God by trusting His Word. It's been well said, love's an action verb. And so chapter 2 tells us, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean, remember that word, among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she's referring to the Old Testament principle of gleaning. Now, remember that. Who is it that's referring to the Old Testament principle of gleaning? The the Moabitess, the the, the young woman. And that's where landowners were to show concern for those who were poor. Don't you love this aspect of the Old Testament? By allowing them to follow behind the reapers and pick up what might have been dropped or unpicked. That's only going to work if you're in the field of somebody who has a king in Israel and is doing not what's right in his own eyes, but in the eyes of God. And please keep in mind, she wasn't going to look for food herself. She was going to look for food for herself and her self-professed bitter mother-in-law with a willingness to exert effort. You know, one question that I've always wondered about about this particular part of the story is, why didn't Naomi go? And we don't know for sure how old she was, but I've been in enough other countries to watch even older women work and work very, very hard just in order to provide, uh, assuming, a meal for, for their family. Why didn't she go? Why didn't she exercise faith in this biblical principle? Well, you could make this argument. It's because love goes first. So if you're saying, well, I'll start loving as soon as... In fact, you remember the gong show? Anybody here old enough to remember the gong show? It'd be good to have a gong up here. Bong on that one, right? None of this. I'll, I'll start loving as soon as somebody... No, love goes first. And we have the privilege and we have the responsibility to work hard at loving others first. You know, there's so much that we have to skip here for sake of time, but I just want to encourage you to look in chapter 2, verse 3. Do you see where it says, she happened to come? That's a pun. So in the uh, original language, it literally means she have to happen. In other words, that's the exact opposite of what's occurring here. This is anything but accidental that she ends up in this field. This isn't just a, a coincidence. And the Lord chooses to bless Ruth's love with abundance. Boaz, the man who owns the field, is related to Naomi's deceased husband. Surprise, surprise, surprise. And he treats her with incredible grace. He invites her to stay in the same field. He even warns the other servants not to touch her. You keep your hands off of her. (laughs) He even ensured that she had enough water to drink. The, The details here are just amazing. 
And how does sweet Ruth respond? It's just humility. She, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. Did you hear that? People will watch you love others and it will have an impact on them. All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. You know, we don't try to grow in biblical love because of what we might receive in return. But I'll tell you, in this hateful, selfish world in which we live, trying to grow in biblical love, if you do that at your workplace, you do that in your neighborhood, you do that in your family, in this self-centered culture... That's going to be noticed. That's going to be noticed. And how could she do it? Well, the next verse explains. She's looking to the Lord for security. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, Jehovah, 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 the God of Israel. Listen to this. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. See, what is it that, that keeps us from working at loving those the Lord has placed around us? It's because we're somewhere other than seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord. And selfishness. I've got to have more stuff for me. That's where I'm going to find my refuge. More pleasure, more material possessions, more approval, more love for me. And in every one of those examples and many more that, that we could name this morning, what's happening is we're trying to find refuge in something that's going to never satisfy. But when we're finding our security and refuge under the wings of our God, what does that free us up to do? It frees us up to, to love others. Hey, are you um, pausing and asking the Lord how you're doing at trying to grow in this aspect of the Spirit's fruit? I, we're not here to have a history lesson. We're here to let the Word of God work on us, right? That would have been a good time for a yes. That is why we're here. How would you evaluate yourself on growing in biblical love? Well, the next part of the story is amazing. At lunch, lunchtime rolls around, and Boaz asks Ruth to come eat with the workers. You don't do that. You don't let the Moabite. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's what he did. And then he tells them not only to let her glean among them, not behind, uh, among you. And hey, by the way, just leave a little extra grain. Just leave a, a little extra grain. And here's what we read. It's fascinating. So she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an F of, of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out. And listen to this. Here's love. She took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was leftovers from lunch. Leftovers from lunch. Now, that, I realize when you start looking at some of these measurements, like, what does that mean? Well, Bible scholars believe this. We're talking about about a half bushel of finished grain, which would have weighed 30 to 40 pounds. That's a lot. Of, in fact, by the time this book is over, these women are swimming in barley. They, they go from a, a, a famine. There's, they got barley everywhere. Barley, barley, barley. And I love that little detail. There's love. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Ruth? She, she finishes her lunch. Can you imagine it? And she puts a little bit of what's left. She sticks that in her pocket. Where's that going to go? Is that the afternoon snackage? Where's that one going? That one's going for Mrs. Bitterpants. 
You realize that? That, that's, that, that is love. That is love. That is, and, and only the Spirit of God could possibly help. A, a, by the way, the bitter pants thing, that was off my notes too. I'll get back here in just a minute. Just a minute. Now, now here, here's what we need to see. Um, all of that, by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, that love, 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 you know what it's doing? It's melting somebody's heart. And whose heart is being melted by the love of Ruth? And the answer is Naomi. Because when you get to chapter 3, it's a new day. And Ruth loved God by taking appropriate risks. She's now going to listen to somebody whom God was working on alongside her. Say, why why do you say that? Because this is where Naomi, not, not Ruth, this is where Naomi suggests that Ruth go present herself to Boaz as an invitation for him to become his kinsman redeemer. Why in the world, here's a question, why in the world would you listen to Mrs. Bitterness? Here's why. It's because Naomi's bitterness is melting. Remember, was it Wizard of Oz? I'm melting, I'm melting. That's what's happening. Her bitterness is melting. Why? Because of Ruth's love. And of course, more importantly, because of God's love. Is there a lesson for us in all of that? You may have somebody in your life. In fact, you may have a lot of people in your life who are far away from the Lord in all sorts of ways. You got anybody like that? What kind of fruit do they need to taste in your life and mine? Our harsh judgment? Our separation? I'm going to have to foolproof my life from that person. Oh, really? Let me tell you about this whole boundaries of foolproof my life. I hope God doesn't start acting that way. You know that? Because if God foolproofs his life, there's not going to be a whole lot of us in his life. Do you mind me saying that? And so if he is our model of love, then let us choose to love others regardless of how easy that might be. And don't give up on that person. You might say it's a hard chapter. There's a big difference between a hard chapter and the final chapter. And that's one of the nice things about being so old. When I showed up here 36 years ago, my hair was jet black. Look at me now. I've hobbled in here. But the beauty of that is to see the stories. Just because it's a bad chapter doesn't mean it's the final chapter. And what that person, whether they're in bitterness or something else needs from you and me right now is a big, a big dose of juicy love. You know what I'm talking about? I finally bought it. I've mentioned this at all of our campuses. I, we have a lot of parties at our house. We're serving 110 people this afternoon for um, uh, my son's softball team with special needs. We love doing that kind of stuff. And I've gotten some of the worst watermelons on the face of the earth this year. I'm serious. I've opened some watermelons up this year. They're yellow. I'm not a genius. They're supposed to be red. We got one from Sam's the other day. I just gave up on Meyer. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't say that. And um, got one from Sam's. I was juicier than all get out. I mean, juice, uh, juice running everywhere. That's what God wants you to be like. That's the way. They, people, they talk to you. They got juice in their face. Love juice in their face is what they got. See, listening to somebody who's growing right alongside and then trusting the Lord to work in circumstances outside of her control. 
You may know that part of the story when Ruth presents herself to, to Boaz and he says, well, here's the thing. There's somebody closer than me. It's amazing how many cliffhangers there are. There's a closer relative. He has to be given the opportunity to go first. And what does Ruth do then? Just wait. Sometimes that's what love does. Just wait because she loves God. She knows that he can be trusted. And what happens? It shines an incredible spotlight on redemption. There's the imagery of Boaz's redemption. And you want to say to Boaz, can we skip all these technicalities and get to the wedding? And what's the answer to that question? No, we can't. Why? Because his redemption is to be a picture of the redemption of Jesus Christ, which has to be sinless. It has to be perfect. And thankfully, the closer relative says, no, you are so cheering for that guy to say no. Say no, say no, say no. And he finally says no. And then we read, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. A son. Born where? Born in Bethlehem. <laughs> this is so funny. Then the women said to who? Who do you expect them to talk to? Maybe Ruth? Maybe mom? <laughs> then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who what? Who what? Who loves you. Boom. And it's better to you than seven sons. (laughs) In case you're a son here this morning. Has given birth to Him. See, what was the lady's summary comment about Ruth? She loves you. And as people watch the way you and I relate to others, how often would they have reason to observe? He loves you. She she loves you. And are there things that would have to change for you or for me so that would happen more frequently? You know, it's somewhat humorous that the focus switches dramatically to Naomi. (laughs) Then Naomi took the child, and you don't read about Ruth ever again in the book. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying a son has been born, what? (laughs) To Naomi. She goes from being a bitter woman to being a doting grandma. And then there's the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, who's the father of... David. And this little baby is an ancestor of King David, who, of course, is the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the great Redeemer King, and the one who chooses to love us perfectly, and who stands ready to help us grow in that characteristic as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word. (laughs) My, oh, my, oh, my. And we love your providence. And Lord, thank you for raising up a young Moabitess. That gives us great hope. Even for those who weren't raised in a quote-unquote Christian home or don't know a lot about the Bible, Lord, you use this woman as a, an illustration and in some ways an indictment of your people at that time. And so, Father, thank you that because of the way she lived, those around, they, they just said, she loves you to Naomi. And Father, I know that for many of us, we would say, wow, I've got some work to do before others are going to conclude that about me. 
Well, Lord, thank you that you've called us in the power of the Holy Spirit to work diligently on this and to add it, to supply this to our faith. And I pray that you would help us do that this week and in the weeks to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.